Hey you, thanks for listening to the Planet LP Podcast. I'm Ted Astrogadu. This is the podcast where we like to drop the proverbial needle on the world of albums. If you're a longtime listener, just wanted to say thanks for being a longtime passenger on this journey. And as a longtime listener, you know that since January 2022, we've been partnering with the pop cultural website, Popdose, to feature new music each month. Well, it's June 2022, so Keith Creighton returns for the Popdose New Music Report, and we'll get all chitty-chatty with each other in just a moment. Subscribe and follow Planet LP on whatever podcasting app you use. We're on the most popular ones. Social channels are pretty easy to find. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at the Planet LP. Facebook, it's just Planet LP. Email works to connect directly with me, Ted, at planetlp.com. And with that bit of self-promotion put to bed, let's start the show. Well, will you look at that? Keith Creighton, a member of the Five Timers Club on the Planet LP Pod, is now on his sixth appearance. How are you, Keith? You know, I didn't get a robe. On SNL, they get a robe. I get a Tina Fey cameo. What do I get here? Come on. Uh, You got the swag. You got the... Thank you for being on for more than five times, Keith. We're on a budget here. It's an honor. It's an honor. (laughs) So Keith writes for Pop Dose, and he comes on each month to talk about new music releases. This time, however, we're going to condense the new music part of the conversation and dig into an artist who, thanks to the Netflix series Stranger Things, has vaulted back into the popular culture. The show featured her 1985 song, Running Up That Hill, A Deal With God, pretty heavily. So much so, the song recently peaked at number four on the Billboard Hot 100 and at number one on a number of streaming platforms. Pretty, pretty impressive. So we'll save that discussion of the album that song was on for a bit later. But first, Keith and I are going to talk about some new music releases that folks should check out. And apparently I'm on deck first, right? Do it. Okay. Hey, way back this, machine. Here we go. Because <laughs> so one thing will lead to another. They, they <laughs> Nice. That's perfect. The Fix, Every Five Seconds, is their new album. Uh, it was recorded actually between 2020 and 2021, but there was a little something called a, ooh, a pandemic that uh, kind of uh, delayed the release. Now, some of these songs have been released ahead of the full album release, which happened on June 3rd. But what's notable about this record for me is the fact that it was made at all. Like Tears for Fears, The Fix have been kind of on ice since their last release in 2012. And that album was pretty good. It was called Beautiful Friction. So if you haven't checked that one out, check that one out too. And so it was a bit of a, um, they're still together? Yeah, that was that kind of moment when when new music from the group started spilling out. But unlike Beautiful Friction, this one had, which had some really catchy earworms, like the title track, for example, the songs on Every Five Seconds, for me, really have taken some time to grow. Something similar happened to me on this on the Tears for Fears album, The Tipping Point. Well, that one was uh, was pretty good out of the box, but for me, it became pretty close to great the more I listen to it. Every five seconds is doing something similar to my ears. I'm not sure that it's a great album yet, but it's really starting to cross that meridian from, okay, not bad to, ooh, I'm really starting to like this. So check that one out. That actually uh, is probably a good thing because sometimes when you like an album too much out of the gate, then it's like Juicy Fruit Gum and it loses its flavor and you kind of (laughs) toss it off. Yeah. And the ones that kind of like, wait a minute, I'm going to reveal something else and something else, you know? So I think those are sometimes the best albums to listen to. Yeah. I I didn't hear anything as strong as say their eighties output, you know, like you, you reference one thing leads to another, like that guitar hook at the beginning, right? Yeah. I mean, that thing just loops through the whole thing and it's so great. This it, it's, well, they're all in their sixties now, so they're more mature. And I think that they're not having to chase radio hits anymore. And they're just doing this album because they want to do it. It's been what, 10 years since beautiful friction. So mm-hmm. they're like, Hey, we got some songs. Let's go do it. And then the thing I like is I always wonder when we hear about a band from like our blast from the past band, how many original members are there? 
Like, you know, sometimes there's no original members. And so I was really excited to see that four of them have been around pretty much since at least the early 80s with the founders there in 79. So you figure that's like a 43-year run. So not bad that they still have so many original members. Exactly. Not too shabby at all. Well, you're up with a pick. Let's see what you've picked. Well, it's Pride Month. And so my two picks this month are going to kind of showcase under the beautiful rainbow. Muna, I think it's Muna, might be Muna, M-U-N-A. My favorite song of all of last year was called Silk Chiffon by Muna. And this is a single that's going to be on the new album that comes out on its self-titled record on the 24th of this month. So next Friday, very excited, got it on pre-order from Amazon. Here's an interesting thing. So there are four women from, I think it was USC, Southern California. They Mm -hmm. all met on campus. And so they proudly sing about their kind of queer identities, which is amazing. And so I do love, I was thinking about this because once again, they could put in amazing songs, like great earworm pop songs, great messages that resonate not only within the LGBT community, but that are also universal. You know, so even though the songs might be about the love between two women, it's actually just about love. And so Mm -hmm. everybody can identify with it. But I think it's really important for people in the LGBTQ community to have songs that reflect their experiences and not just heteronormative pop songs. And so I think back 2009 when Adam Lambert kind of struck big. Right. And do you remember that American Music Awards performance where he kissed, I think it was either his guitarist or his keyboard player? It doesn't come to mind, but I, I could always go on YouTube and look at it. Yeah, so, so it, it exists. I know it does. Because that was way it. after like the Ellen came out on her sitcom in the 90s and stuff. So right. this was 2009 and still the, the controversy came. Was it too soon for him to come out as gay before establishing his fan base? Kind mm-hmm. of they were paralleling mm-hmm. him to, you know, Elton John and even Freddie Mercury, who basically sang straight, even though they had very public identities, you know, later in their careers as they came out of the closet. Mm-hmm. And so I do love the fact that now is, you know, you can come out of the gate and just be who you are and it doesn't affect your fan base or your career trajectory at all. You know, so I'm really, really, really excited to hear how the new album sounds. I have their first album. It's wonderful. So beautiful pop music for Pride Month. Whether you pronounce it Muna or Muna, M-U-N-A is the way you spell it. Silk Chiffon was actually named the song of the year by Line of Best Fit, a very popular blog. And Mm -hmm. also like Rolling Stone and a bunch of others really lauded it. And so check out Silk Chiffon. It's already streaming. Highly, highly recommended. Can't wait for the album. I'll second that recommendation. I really like the song as well. So I'm sticking in the 80s, Keith. I'm stuck in the We're 80s. We're going back. <laughs> we are. The DeLorean. We are. We're right back to like 1985, I guess. On June 14th, though, 2022, Simple Minds released a new single called Vision Thing. You remember Simple Minds? Of course, everyone does. If uh, you just listen to pop radio or at least adult contemporary radio these days, you'll still hear Don't You Forget About Me from the Breakfast Club soundtrack. Well, they are currently touring in Europe and the UK, and they do have a new album that's coming out in October of this year called Direction of the Heart. Direction of the Heart. Yeah. Now, according to the band's website, the album has guests on it like Sparks frontman Russell Mayle and former Gad Grimes music partner. He's the bassist in in Simple Minds now, but he was in a band called Danny Wilson. Oh, yeah. Uh, Meet Danny Wilson. Yeah. Mary's Prayer. Mary's Prayer is the one that came out in 1987. So the songwriter, uh, Gary Clark, contributes to that. Uh, He was in uh, Danny Wilson. Ged Grimes and Gary Clark were in Danny Wilson. Is that confusing enough? And they had a super hit with Mary's Prayer. What's with all the personal pronouns? Oh, my God. So that's uh, track of. you can't have a simple mind to keep track of that. You have to have a very complex mind, I suppose. So that's one that's coming out. And I heard it a few times. It's not bad. Again, it's like the fix. It's going to take a little time to kind of grow on me yeah. and probably other listeners. But I think at this stage of these bands careers, like the fix, Tears for Fears, Simple Minds, they just can record whatever they want. And um, people will come out and want to hear the hits. But as far as their new music is concerned, it's going to be what their muse is telling them rather than their A&R people saying, you need a hit, got to get on radio. I liked Vision Thing. It was a big pop song. It's like very new wavy. 
It's got a lot going on in the mix. And so I was like, ooh, because like, wasn't Vision Thing also the name of a Sisters of Mercy record? It was, yeah. Yeah. Ah, so I wonder what Vision That's Thing actually nice. means. I well, loved for, it. I was like, ooh, this is cool. For Sisters of Mercy, they were actually taking it from George H.W. Bush because ah. he would say, we got to have that uh, that Vision Thing, the Vision <laughs> Thing. And so that's where it came from. I had no idea. That's awesome. <laughs> Since the album doesn't come out till October, I highly recommend two things. One, Simple Minds had um, a compilation came out a couple years ago called 40, which mm-hmm. has kind of the single mixes of a lot of their big hits. And you really forget how many amazing singles beyond the Breakfast Club they had. And then I also then that inspired me to then get their Amazon has these. They're amazing for like the price of one album. You get five albums and they usually called like five classic albums or something Mm -hmm. like that. And they come in little cardboard sleeves, but they're perfectly remastered CDs. Sometimes they have bonus tracks. And so I got one which has five of their classic albums so I can get into the deep cuts. So I'm kind of on this simple mind vision quest. And so that's kind of where I am to kind of really appreciate them beyond the singles. So I highly recommend going deep cuts on bands you love. There you go. Do you have a a deep cut or a a group or a performer that you'd like to share now that maybe has some deep cuts that you're into, or maybe just a single you really like? Let's see. Because, you know, I'm going to talk about Haley Kiyoko next as my Mm -hmm. next one on the new releases and stuff like that. But, oh, here's a perfect one. Eurythmics. They're nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so they, a couple of years ago, put out extended, you know, what do they call those deluxe editions of their mm-hmm. entire catalog with all kinds of rarities, B-sides, covers, you know, one-off tracks. And oh my gosh, I never really appreciated because I always had the greatest hits. You know, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I got the greatest hits. I'm set. I did the same thing with Journey. Like all these artists during the pandemic, I collected all of their albums. And man, the Eurythmics just has so much amazing music out there that I feel like I've almost been denied. Like We're going to talk Kate Bush in a bit, and I've been with right. Kate for 30 years, but really being able to now deep dive into Eurythmics has been wonderful. Awesome. And then who are you talking about earlier? Haley Kiyoko? Haley Kiyoko. So she's another very proud you know, lesbian pop star, but well, she's a pop star who identifies as lesbian. I think that's mm-hmm. the way to put it. You know, because the music comes first. She does really, really amazing pop songs. And I was surprised because I thought, okay, I've just, you know, she's an up and coming, very young artist, but she has an acting career that goes back more than a decade. You know, she did commercials. She ran the whole circuit on Disney Channel kind of type shows. She was Velma in a couple of kind of straight to video Scooby-Doo movies recently. No kidding. And so now it makes sense because when you look at her um, videos, she's directed a lot of the videos, but she stars in them all. They're very intense movies. They talk about the love between two people, but then also the baggage that comes with it. You know, an abusive boyfriend. There's one where a transgender person gets harassed. Just all these amazing, almost like little mini Oscar movies in her videos. So Haley Kiyoko is just an amazing up and coming pop star. So her new album, Renaissance, sorry, Panorama comes out on July 29th. Very, very excited about it. Because in recent podcasts, we've been talking about um, like Luna Lee and Biba mm-hmm. Doobie and all these right. kind of like hybrid artists, you know, that have dualities, very different kind of ancestries. And so Haley Kiyoko, her mom is Japanese and her dad is Scottish. So she grew up in California. And so she kind of draws upon all these influences, you know, as she kind of defines herself out there. And she's also a very outspoken advocate, really just in time for Pride Month. It's really great to start hearing her advanced singles from the record. Excellent. Excellent. I'll have to check that one out. I I think I heard that and you've mentioned her before. So I think I may have checked her out. But usually when you come on the pod, it's so much music that it's, and I, I, and I do, I do my due diligence and I go back and then I listen to everything that you recommend, but sometimes I forget, did I, did I listen to that? I'm not sure. So, so many, so many, but it's interesting because <laughs> I first heard of her when she was critical of one of my other favorite singers, who is a Charlie XCX. Yeah. And so Charlie XCX and Baby Rexa, and I, I forgot who, if it was like Cardi B or someone did a song called Girls. And it was a very lightweight pop song, just about kind of in the vein of Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl, kind of like talking about the fun of experimentation and the fun Mm -hmm. of just flirting with other girls. Right. And so Kyoko was very critical of it, you know, saying that 
the song kind of fetishized lesbian romance, especially in the media, you know, kind of using it for gain when she didn't consider any of these artists authentic with the message. And so, you know, Haley made some really good points, but so did the artists, you know, because what they're talking about is consensual affection between people. And why can't they be celebrated, whether you identify as bisexual, lesbian, curious, anything like that? I thought it's a great song, but I listened to both sides. And I think everyone made really good points and everyone's making great pop music. So I guess we all win. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. Here's something that kind of expanded my mind. It's a band that, uh, well, one, I know very little about. Their name is Foles. I know they are British. I know they've been around since 2005. And then the third thing is, I know I'm kind of digging their current single, 2001. Mm. Now, according to the wiki on the band, there's a couple of their songs that were featured on the British TV series Skins, which I did see that. And I really did like Skins. Uh, very dark. I think it came out in like 07 or something like that. It was about these young teens in London, and it how to explain it would be like, um, what's that uh, HBO series called, Euphoria? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was a bit like that. It's very dark in a way. So there's a lot of sex and drug use and people trying to find their way in the world as far as what I want to do or their sexuality. So in a way, it was pretty cutting edge for 2007, but there, the Bulls had a couple songs that were featured on there. But 2001 is their latest single. What made me laugh about the band was the fact that uh, Jack Benna and Giannis Philippakis, who were originally in a math rock band called the Edmund Fitzgerald, which Ooh. if you're a fan of Gordon Lightfoot, yeah, the you'll, you'll yeah. know right the name of the ship that was uh, that got caught in that horrible storm on Lake Superior back in 1975 and sank killing the entire crew. So for decades, people had this complex hypotheses or these complex hypotheses on why the boat sank. And like the tragedy of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the boat, the Edmund Fitzgerald, the band also sank as the band members said, the music was way too serious, man. We want to have some fun. So we're getting rid of the Edmund Fitzgerald. We're starting foes. And it was born out of the wreck of the band that was the Edmund Fitzgerald. So anyways, if you listen to 2001-2001, it's kind of like if you took Sheik's disco sound, okay. a kind of yeah. that guitar sound, yeah. and you fused it with talking heads. Ooh. So if you did those two things. Oh, yeah, I'm into that. That sounds okay, good. Then you've got 2001 by Foles, and that's the song that I'm kind of digging right now. So cool. Yeah, they're one of those bands. I'll have to check them out. They're kind of like, you know, I listen to so much Britpop, but then there's still ones like Travis and Gene mm -hmm. and all these other ones that you hear of all the time. You're very aware of the brand, but you've yeah. never heard the band. So, okay, Foles is on my list. I'm going to check it right. out. Before we get to um, what we want to talk about, which is uh, Kate Bush, we have to talk a little bit about Taylor Hawkins. The drummer who recently died, and he was with the Foo Fighters, but also had his own band. But there's a, kind of a big announcement coming down the pike. Yeah. So Foo Fighters finally announced, along with the Taylor Hawkins estate, that the, there's going to be two tribute concerts, one in LA, one in London. And they finally revealed this week the lineup, or they said more to come, definitely. Mm -hmm. But oh my gosh, like these are going to be incredible shows. And it's just kind of like, okay, and I think it seems like the right pace. You know, if they did these too soon, it'd be like, oh, too soon. You know, but they're, you know, in September. So I think that's going to be kind of like the right amount of time for especially everybody in their immediate circles for Mr. Hawkins, you know, time to grieve, mm -hmm. time to process, time to share, time to also, they were so busy, just relax and decompress and then kind of come back out and hit the next phase, which is honoring his life. And right, so, oh right. my God, have you heard the lineup for these concerts? I did, but you go for it. Okay. So <laughs> it's basically a who's who of the people that Taylor Hawkins grew up loving and then also working with throughout his career. And so I think the biggest news is we got on both sides of the pond, Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson from Rush are going to be yeah. on the same stage. <laughs> and so that might be as close as we ever get because they said Rush is never performing again. So right, who knows right. what might take place? Will Getty sing? You know, will Dave get behind the drums? It's um, possible. It's possible. You never know. Yeah. So between Rush, you also got Roger Taylor, 
Brian May from Queen. It's going to be amazing. You got Wolfgang mm-hmm. Van Halen, Josh Hom, Queens of the Stone Age. Is it Hom or Hummy? I always. I don't know. I, I yeah. I'm, don't even know. We got Chrissy yeah. Hind. You got Alanis Morissette. Oh my gosh, you got Stuart Copeland from the Yeah, Blues. I know. I you got know. Chevy Metal, his you know cover band that also then doubled as the Birds of Satan. So, and plus you're going to have all the Foo Fighters. Dave Chappelle, yeah, I got mixed feelings on him. Is going to be in the LA or in the London one. But yeah, it's going to be a really, really amazing, very cathartic, very loud and awesome celebration of his life. Plus you got I think, over here, I, Nikki Six and Chad Smith. Oh my God, and Gene Simmons from Kiss. Oh, it's going to be great. I think it would be really awesome. If Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Stuart Copeland all teamed up and did some Rush songs and also did some police songs. Oh my God, that would be amazing. Just kind of like, you know, go through a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But of course, you know, they, they, they're they going to want to do some Foo Fighters stuff, but um, definitely honor Taylor in that way. But he was such a fan of both bands that this would be such a such a great thing to do. And especially, I think a lot of, Rush fans and police fans may just be like, wow, this is, this really works. You know, I mean, Stuart's so good. So that might be kind of a cool thing. I don't know. Maybe they're, maybe they're planning something. I think that would be neat if they did because they all know each other. They're all friends. You got all these great drummers. You got Chad Smith, Roger Taylor, Stuart Copeland, but also Nandy Bushnell lives in England and she's also been over to the States a lot. As you remember, she's the 11 year old drummer that got into a big, YouTube drumming war with Dave Grohl, which kind of got all of us through the pandemic. And she has since guested with basically a who's who of rock elite. And man, does she have the chops. So I would love to see her behind the kit, especially when the Foo Fighters do some songs. I think that would be great. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Well, speaking of drumming, I can hear it thundering. It's coming for me through the trees. Help me, darling. Help me, please. That's a great transition. That's awesome. (laughs) I think Kate Bush is coming. I I can hear her. Yes, I can. And we are going to be talking about, I would say, our crushes. Yeah. (laughs) Collectively. There's a lot of people who are crushing hard on Kate Bush back in the day. And well, I'm I feel one like of we're them, in the I upside think- down because now yeah. something that's been, she's been such a, especially over here in the States, she's been such a, what do you call it? Niche artist. You know, yeah. the fact that now yeah. she is just, everybody's talking about her. I'm like, oh my God, the upside down is finally right side up. So thanks stranger. It things. is. She's gotten such a second life out of, out of the stranger things, inclusion of the song running up that hill, a deal with God. And it was played quite a bit. On, on part of this current season of Stranger Things. And as a bonus, Kate is a huge fan of the series. So she was super honored that the song was featured so prominently in the series. And sure enough, people are like, what is this song? What is this amazing song? And I'm sure it's a bunch of Gen Zers and younger who are watching Stranger Things and they, they all shazammed it or whatever, and then just started uh, streaming it on on whatever streaming platform they use. So yeah, it's, it is a bummer because uh, it's, it's supposed to be number one, but since it's not on the radio, that's the yeah. only thing that's keeping it off the top of the Billboard 100 is the fact that radio stations aren't playing it, even though it is the most sold, most streamed track in the world. They're not playing it to the, the extent that they should be, but it, it did get up to number four in the Hot 100. So, and I, again, that's that's probably sales, but you're right. I mean, I looked at... At radio, I still look at radio charts, and I would say some markets are adding it, but it's not getting the kind of traction that one would hope. So what's wrong with you, radio? Maybe that's why I don't work in you anymore. Because they say there is still a chance she gets to number one, you know? So they say it's still got heat, but she's like number one. I think, you know, they have so many charts these days. You know, she's number one on the Global 200. She's number one on alternative albums. The album itself on the 200 is kind of in the top 30 now. So That's we'll great. see, you know, because yeah. then people are going to discover the rest of that album, which I think is a perfect gateway record for people to kind of get into the glory of Kate Bush. So I would oh love to God. kick this part off with what is your origin story? How did you discover Kate Bush? I used to go to the record store probably three, sometimes four times a week to buy records, depending on how much money I had. If I had, it was payday. <laughs> I would go to Tower Records and buy 
the new, whether it was LP, it was mostly LPs at that point in 85. I was just starting to buy a CD player around that time, but CDs were kind of expensive. They were about 18, 1999, and you could still get new release albums for $5.99. So I was still buying vinyl. But I would also go to this used record store that if you live in Northern California, specifically the Bay Area, you will know Rasputin's and Rasputin would often get promo copies and then they would just mark them down to around, uh, you could get them for about four or $5. So I would fill out my collection that way. And one day I was at tower and they were great with the pre-promotion stuff. So they had a huge poster of Kate Bush of the hounds of love album cover. And it just said coming soon. And they had the release date. And I said, is that the same? And I knew a lot of people that worked at tower. I said, is that the same woman that sings running up that hill? And they're all, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew what the release date was. So I got the record on the day that it was released. I came home, put it on. Of course, loved the first song because I'd already heard it uh, a number of times. And then the other songs started coming on. And I thought, ah, this is a really great, I mean, really good collection. The song's pretty strong. Then I flipped that record over <laughs> and I put on the ninth wave, which we're going to talk in depth about. Yeah. And that's what really blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, what is this? This is so good. So then I got bitten by the Kate Bush bug. I thought, wow, she is so talented. And then I started buying her back catalog. I realized well, she's got way more albums than I realized. And then I went back and bought every album from the beginning to right up to Hounds of Love. So that's my origin story. It was just, I heard running up that hill on the radio and I really liked it. And then I bought the record the day that it came out. How about you? Yeah, I have a much stranger kind of, you know, stranger things, a stranger reintroduction to Kate Bush. I grew up in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And so we would kind of make these treks down to the, I think it was Cleveland State area where there's an area called Coventry. Coventry had some amazing record stores. And so at that point, though, I was really into ABBA. Laura mm -hmm. Branigan, stuff like that. We're talking early 80s here. Right. This is probably right. like 1979 to maybe 1981. And so then I started getting into Duran Duran. So I was always in that section of the record store. And I always came across time and time again, the Kate Bush, the original Kick Inside, which had the American cover. Mm -hmm. Now, there were three covers for that record. The really far out one that's famous in Europe where she's kind of strapped to the kite. Yep. Then there was a really a blatant American one where she was just in a pink tutu, you know, with cleavage up that they thought would try to sell it. But this was the that one, one that, I didn't. That one I've never seen. I've seen the the one you're probably going to talk about in yeah. a second. Go ahead. The Sorry. one where she's in the wood box. You know, the one that Tori Amos winds up using as inspiration for Little Earthquakes. And so, but there was just something so mesmerizing about that picture that every time I was flipping through the bins, I always made sure I stopped on the Kate Bush thing and just kind of crushed out on the picture. <laughs> so finally, I get the courage to take a, a used copy finally showed up. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go take this up to the, the listening stand, you know, where they have two or three turntables and headsets. And so you go through the whole motions oh, wow. of putting the vinyl on. They had listening booths? Yeah, back in the day. They did. Yeah, they had a couple of turntables. And so mm. you have the big clunky headsets. Huh. And so imagine though, and remember, at that point, you know, if I'm really into ABBA and Laura Branigan mm -hmm. and Tony Basil is probably as extreme as I got at that point, to put the needle on the record and have the frequency of her voice on yes. Wuthering Heights come out. It's so helium, isn't I it? I thought it was on the wrong yeah. speed. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, it was almost like it was too much. Like, I had to take the needle off the record and like every hair <laughs> on my body was standing on end. So I'm like, okay, this is not me. She's some artsy thing. And so. Yeah, yeah. I put it away. And then later on, when The Dreaming came out, there was such a mesmerizing cover. I'm like, okay, I got to listen to this. Sure enough, go up there, put the needle on the record. And I'm like, what the aboriginal <laughs> sounds are coming out? Bang the aborigines. Yeah, like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, why does someone so beautiful have, like, you know, so I never gave those songs even more than five, 10 seconds. So cut to, I'm now down in Tampa going to college in 1985. And there's a cassette only store called Tape World. And so I was in there in the mall and just the, the Hounds of Love cassette just looked so beautiful. I couldn't be, I'm like, okay, I have to own this. Like that record, that album cover is just so exquisite. I'm going to buy it. And then pretty lady I, with some cute dogs. Exactly. What's that like? You know? yeah. 
<laughs> and so I just was like, okay, I'm, I'm all in. I'm going to spend my $7.99, which probably was a lot of money back in 1985. And I think, it, yeah, that seems to be a bit of a markup. I, I guess they didn't have the, the Tower Records deal of $5.99. Yeah. So I bought it. Out. And like you, I had the same experience. Like, oh my God, the pop songs completely blew me away on side mm-hmm. A. And then it just literally was like going into a movie to go through the ninth wave, which we'll talk about in a bit. But then same thing. Then I spent, so I basically spent most of my 1985 listening to that, mm-hmm. that and probably Prince's Around the World in a Day. It was down in Bradenton and there's a great little record store that's now in Clearwater, but it was down then it was in Bradenton called Daddy Cool. And the guy that <laughs> ran Daddy Cool was a cape man. And so he had everything. So I got to buy the single file, which was the green box set of all of her seven inch singles. Oh, I I've never seen that. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. So I have that, which is just a gorgeous box set. Then I got Hounds of Love on marbleized vinyl. Then I got it on marbleized cassette. Then I went through and started buying the rest of the records, including the, you know, the live EP, you know, which was on cassette at the time. And so then I just literally spent most of my 1986 just going deep, deep, deep into Kate, not only all of her albums, but then all the 12 inch singles had great B-sides, including Under the Ivy, which I think is one of her best, if not her best song, you know? And so then Cloud Busting also showed, whoa, a 12-inch single could do so much. Wow, you could really just tear a song apart and expand it and add lyrics and add vocal parts and add new bridges and mind-blowing. It's quite the album to me. It's a progressive rock masterpiece, especially side two. Even the the pop songs, the quote unquote pop songs, there's a lot going on in them uh, musically. There's a lot of layers, plenty of stuff to listen to on the headphones and still get sort of like, wow, there's, there's sounds in here that are, are pretty deep in the mix. But when you put them, put some good headphones on, you can really hear it. The first side, I like every song, but strangely enough, I don't like Mother Stands for Comfort. It's my least favorite song on that one. I don't know why. I just never connected with it. I would send a skip it, or if I don't skip it, I don't pay that much attention to it. But except for Running Up That Hill, Hounds of Love, the title track, absolutely love. The Big Sky, I think it's it's a really, you know, lyrically, it's not a lot going on on there, but I really like the energy of it. And then Cloud Busting, just the, I don't know, the sort of military drumming, I guess you would call it that. I don't know if it's kind of military. That one was taken from a, a book that she had read and about a guy who really did make a machine with his dad that would try to make it rain. And he, his dad was taken away from him. And it's about growing up and being without a father figure who he was so close to. And so there's a, there's a lyric in that, in that song where she sings, the sun's coming out. And then she says, your son's coming out. And I didn't realize that son S U N and S O N were two different things as I was listening to it. Cause I didn't, you know, I used to listen to it in the car mostly when I put it on cassette so I didn't read the lyrics. So I thought she was saying son and S-U-N the same way. I didn't realize it was S-O-N at the end. Your son's coming out. It was like your son is coming out from you know underneath your shadow or is coming into his own. Kate Bush has a, a big mass appeal, but she does have her fair share of LGBTQ fans as well. And I think that things like that where she would weave in these lyrics where it could be easily taken as the son and the father have this relationship, but finally the son reveals himself for who he is. So when you hear this sort of lyrics from Kate Bush, I could see where it would appeal to um, folks who are LGBTQ. It just has something, there's something about her, not only her presence, but the way she writes that I think that there's an appeal there, but it's a mass appeal. Really. It goes beyond specific sexual orientation. I think it, uh, it's, she's sort of, you know, she's pansexual, I suppose. The, you know, having an, a kind of an ambiguous or open to interpretation lyric can totally be a lifesaver in the ocean, which kind of previews our talk on the ninth wave in a second, mm-hmm. you know, to save somebody when they are drowning and feeling like nobody hears them, nobody sees them. I identify as gender non-binary. There have been songs throughout the 80s and 90s that I've really clung to before I came out of the closet. Somebody gets me. Somebody sees me. I think it's wonderful. And if you remember the video for Cloud Busting, Kate played the boy and Donald Sutherland played the dad. Yep. 
Yep. And so great little cinematic piece. And so I do love the way that, you know, because I took it from the beginning, you know, your son's coming out the way I always read it was coming out of his shadow, especially if the dad mm-hmm. was taken away, the kid has to become the man of the family All and right. kind of find his right. way on his own. And so that's the way I took it. But I do love the fact that, yeah, if someone's kind of in the closet and then here's that just might even take it out of context and just give it something that gives people meaning. Here we are in Pride Month. Another great thing to talk about. I have a, a slight detour about Kate Bush that I'd like to reveal. <laughs> do it. Let's do it. We're, we're, you're in so a safe I was, place. I, I was so into this album that in 1986, my mother and I, we went to England to visit family. And I was working in radio and I thought, gosh, I wish I could just go over there and try to interview Kate Bush. I'll Ooh. take my cassette recorder and I'll see if I can. So I'm, I'm going over on the plane and I'm telling my mom, I said, so you know how much I'm into the uh, Kate Bush? She goes, oh yeah, that's all you ever talk about. Kate Bush, this, Kate Bush, that. I said, I want to interview her. Well, where does she live? I said, I don't know. That's the problem. She says, well, what, what's your plan? I said, my plan is to try to go to the BBC and find out where she lives. And then maybe we could rent a car and drive up there and see if I could try and, you know, maybe run into her on the street and say, hey, by the way, I'm an American DJ. I'd like to interview you. But I want to bring this the, the tape back and play it back for American audiences. She goes, that sounds like a really good plan, but how are you going to execute this? Besides, I mean, you can't just walk into the BBC. And yeah. I said, well, why not? <laughs> and so- Might get um, arrested, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Could they arrest me? So I, I got there and my cousins, I said, so my plan, I told my plan about Kate Bush. They started laughing. They said, you'll never find her. It's it's not going to happen. So you talked about the the video for cloud busting and Donald Sutherland that's in it. She found out that Donald Sutherland, who she really admired as an actor and thought he would be great in the video, she tracked him down at a hotel. Ooh. <laughs> and she's, she pitched him okay. the idea of being in the video. I don't even think she, he knew who she was, but she convinced him. She says, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pop artist here in, in the UK and I've got this video. And she kind of pitched it and he goes, um, okay, that sounds intriguing. So I, th- as I read that years later, I thought, so if she could track down Donald Sutherland and pitch it to him, that I you know, my video. How come I can't as some nothing radio DJ from a small market station in Sin, California, go to England and maybe picture it just talking to my cassette recorder and I'll just bring it back to the United States and play it? Oh, if only I just did listen to my cousins, I maybe it could have met her. I don't know. So it never happened. Oh, I was I was hoping like, oh, then suddenly there she no, was in Tower never, Records. It, oh, no, no, it never, it never happened because I was talked out of it by my cousins who oh, give it up, Ted. You'll never find her. You'll never find her. You're a wanker. And there she was, probably sitting two doors down in a cafe. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So sorry about that little detour, but I just had to get it out of my system. Yeah. Okay, here's my Kate detour. Then we'll talk about the ninth wave. Okay. So because everyone's like, oh, it's interesting that, you know, she synced up her song with um, Stranger Things. But Mm -hmm. Kate has such a long history of syncing her songs to movies and television shows. So she had this woman's work, which was in She's Having a Baby. Right, right. She had Be Kind of My Mistakes, which was in Castaway. She was the only vocal track on the soundtrack to Brazil, mm-hmm, you know, which and, I have, by the way, because of her. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So I have all these on either vinyl or CD and stuff because it wasn't until much later that this, a lot of them got compiled. One of her most amazing tracks that she was very heavily involved with comic relief. Have you heard her sing Do Bears with yes. Rowan Atkinson? Yeah. Find it on YouTube. It's very fun because, you know, typical to like a television special, people come out and sing these sappy love songs to each other. Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, stuff like that. You know, so Rowan Watkinson kind of comes out and kind of plays it straight, talking about what a beautiful Venus he has found and all that. Do I love you? Do I want you? Will I give my life to you if I could? He sets up that this is going to be a traditional love song. He says, I met her in the first class lounge of a jumbo jet. It was love at first sight. Romeo and Juliet. And then Kate Bush, you know, who I would have never seen this coming. She pretty much deadpans. He looked pretty rich and I was down on my luck. So I charged him a fortune for a flying. And then Rowan comes in, fuck, crying out loud. 
And it's just like, oh my God. And later on, he goes, he's another creep and he drives me around the bend. So to alleviate the boredom, I sleep with his friends, you know? And I'm like, oh my gosh. And so, so I knew that. So I've grown up with that song on bootlegs and stuff like that. I just found out about an hour before we taped this, Kate Bush starred in a comic relief film called Less Dogs, where she that played I the bride. Yeah. It's on YouTube. So look at Les, L-E-S Dogs, full episode, 1990. And you will see Kate Bush in an acting role playing the bride in a wedding that completely goes to hell. <laughs> okay. I will be checking that one out. And before, as a precursor getting into the ninth wave, I want to play an interview that was aired on Entertainment Tonight back in 1985, talking to Kate about her album, Hounds of Love the song running up that hill and just generally about her music and how she works. They were trying to introduce her to American audiences. Everyone finds an obsession and they just become fanatical about it. And music was the thing that for me gave me a great sense of reward to actually be able to create something out of nothing. And you actually form a relationship with the thing that you become obsessed with. And to the point of where it's very dear to you. And when I was very young, music was always around. In my house, it was always being played, particularly traditional music, English and Irish. And they're very strong influences. Confidence when you're performing is something that you learn to bluff. Hopefully you look confident, but I don't know if you ever truly are confident of yourself or what you do. And in a way, I think that's probably what keeps an awful lot of artists going insecurity of themselves and their work and and the hope that by doing the next piece it, they can prove to themselves that they can still do it and she proved it on the ninth wave she did reference english and irish music the traditional yeah. and it definitely shows up on the ninth wave that is for sure there is an episode of the new stranger things season called i think the deep dive where water is very much a part of the story and i'm not going to go any further on that but the ninth wave takes place in the water. What an interesting thing, because kind of prepare for this podcast. I'm like, I've always wondered if somebody did would do a deep dive on the ninth wave and kind of analyze it like a you know a film thesis. And mm -hmm. so I was able to find one that you I shared with you when we talked about that and right. highly worth checking out. But the nice thing about the ninth wave is this story has been part of my soul now for like 35 years. And yet you can still take so many different things from it. Is this literally a story of somebody in, a, in the water who has been thrown overboard with a life vest and a little pinging light, wondering if they're going to be rescued before they die in the frigid water? Mm -hmm. Or is it somebody having a dream? Because remember, it starts out and dream of sheep, and it sounds like someone's kind of lulling to bed. And so there's almost a Mulholland vibe, Mulholland Drive vibe there. Is this someone's dream? Is this somebody literally lost at sea? Is this somebody that's been sucked into an upside down type alternate reality? Because there's a whole witch trial that happens in here. Yeah. And then even at the very end, does this have a happy ending or does it have a sad ending? And so it's just amazing how she was able to piece all these songs together and take you on this journey all on one side of the record. It's an amazing short film. It was going to be a movie from what I could tell. She was actually going to see if Terry Gilliam could direct it, but that never mm -hmm. came to be. But I think it's a perfect movie in and on its own, just in terms of theater of the mind. Absolutely. I don't think that it would translate well to film. Uh, Terry Gilliam's a good friend of hers, and I'm sure that he would do his level best on trying to realize her vision. But this thing is, the ninth wave is such an, a treat for the ears in terms of audio experience, especially if you listen to it on good headphones. Because from the start, which does start with just her at the piano and, and Dreaming of Sheep, and then it goes into a kind of soundscape and things start becoming ominous. And it's this person that's sinking under the water. And you wonder like, she, she's dying, right? It seems like this woman's going to be dead. Her life soon. flashing before her yeah. eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And she's getting voices from the past and she's wishes that um, she could just you know, turn the radio on, listen to some voices talking about stupid things. Let me be weak and let me dream of sheep. And you think, yeah, this could be the final 
moments of somebody who's lost at sea and is just bobbing up and down on the water. And, and these are the last things that she remembers. But then, like you said, there comes this trial where she gets accused of being a witch. And then she's guilty at the end. Oh, that's very ominous when they're chanting yeah. guilty. And then you hear, like I always pictured it as the devil. So mm-hmm. I kind of pictured her down in hell more than Salem. It really just kind of reminded me then also every season of Stranger Things has a big bad. Same thing with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There was mm-hmm. always like a big bad villain. And so it was kind of like Kate up against the big bad. I just found it mesmerizing. But oh my God, it was terrifying the first time I heard it though. Because I was in this pop music phase and I'm listening to the cassette on my headsets and I'm in college, you know, freshman year. And so all of a sudden it was this terrifying trial. I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? But it's <laughs> thrilling. Like in, in the blog that I had shared with you, I never picked up on this. But in the beginning of Watching You Without Me, mm-hmm. Kate sings with almost like she has Novocaine in her lips. Barely enunciates, you know, you can't hear me. Mm-hmm. And I never pictured or put that together that she's in the icy water and the icy water is beginning to take its toll on the character. Yeah, and I so, love that song. I absolutely adore that song. I used to listen to that one track a lot, like rewind it and just start it over again because it's it's so hypnotic, even though like you were saying in the in the in that blog post and we'll link to that in the show notes or at least on the on the main page where this episode is going to exist so you can click over yourself we keep saying the blog post a blog post but well, so well the, the actual yeah. one yeah it's it's a it's a great read uh, the person has a, a very sharp analytical mind about this about this record but you're right I didn't realize, I didn't get a sense that it was this this frozen lips in a way, you know, Novocaine or just feeling like this is, this person's starting to pass into the great beyond as it were. But in that song, she's like a ghost watching either her family, her lover, a significant other, somebody, but you know, the title, Watching You Without Me. There's a refrain that she keeps saying, but I'm not here. I'm not here. So the ghost of, of, of her as it were. But she's able to see this, and it's it's such a powerful song because it also it has this hypnotic quality throughout it. But then it has this bridge part, and I, I can't even explain the type of musical style that it's in. I, I can't say if it's Middle Eastern or some sort of Central European. I don't know. Uh, do you have any idea yeah. what that that middle part, that little bridge yeah. part? Well, I was thinking about this. Kate Bush in the 80s was like Prince in the 80s, mm-hmm. where they were literally their own genre of music. Yeah. You know, because later on, like when Tori Amos and like Mila Jovovich, you know, the actress did her mm-hmm. album, The Divine Comedy. The only way I could describe those records was, oh, it's like a Kate, it's like in the style of Kate Bush. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Something that's very kind of like literary, fantastical, defies genres, yet mixes all kinds of genres in. So, yeah, I wouldn't know how to kind of explain it. And that's one of the best things about Kate Bush. You only can listen to it. The segue into Jig of Life, where it starts out with a kind of, she was talking about traditional English and Irish music in that clip from Entertainment Tonight we played earlier. That's definitely front and center on Jig of Life, which uh, has the, I think the the first lyric is, hello, old lady, or something like that. Um yeah. Yeah, well, because also, the, is that the one where she's actually talking to herself in the future, yeah, where the, yeah. her future self that grew up, got married, had kids, had grandkids is saying, don't die on me. Yep, you, I, yep. you owe me the life that I'm going to live. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's just amazing like to think that way about a story. And then her brother does the poetry reading during uh, towards the end of it. That's, that's her brother, John Carner Bush. And um, then- you get the space talk, which is the astronauts. You've heard the, the sort of squawk yeah. box, you know, and you hear this sort of thing and then you realize, well, now she's up in space. And then the song, hello earth comes on. Yeah. Or is she in heaven? You know, because the thing yeah. is hello yeah. earth, the way it mixes with the morning fog, which ends mm-hmm. on a very sweet note. Yeah. Still to this day, you don't really know. Did the character pass? Yeah. Or did she get, was she pulled back to life? Well, according to Kate, she said, no, it's a happy ending. She does come back and she does realize how much she loves her family. I guess it's a bit of a um, Wizard of Oz trip. And you were yeah. there and you, and were, you there, were there and you were yeah. there. Yeah. I tell my mother, tell my father. Yeah. 
It is. It, uh, it ends very lovely, you know, because especially I would have, I would always listen to like a side of a cassette and then the stereo would, you know, snap off and the stereo would shut down and I would go to sleep. And yeah, that is like a nice way to end it. Or also if I had to end the night on waking the witch, I would never sleep. I'd just have yeah, yeah, all night. Yeah. So it, it, you're right. And the way she ends that song where she says, I tell my mother, I tell my father, I tell my brothers, and then there's sort of that yeah, 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 yo part. And yeah. then she says how much I love them. And the way she phrases that, it's very touching. I was just like, yeah. oh, that's very sweet, Kate. I really, you got some very good emotion in your voice, and it really affected me as well. So still brings the waterworks. Very- every time I hear yeah. it, I still get those happy tears when yeah, the morning yeah, fog just, comes just, on. Because I think about my own family, and I think about how much I love them, and I think, oh, you know, she kind of really literally gave voice and a great vocal phrasing to the word, how much I, or the words, how much I love them. She really nailed it. And I don't yeah. know how many takes she did to nail it, but she got it on the one that ended up on the record. Okay. So now we got a whole generation of people that are discovering the Hounds of Love album. Where would you recommend they go next? If you're new to Kate Bush, you have all these other records. Do you go forward and listen to Central World and Red Shoes? Or do you go backwards and start with the kick inside? Where would you go? If you're taken by Running Up That Hill, Deal With God, go to the Sensual World. Because those songs, while not as deep as what was on Hounds of Love, it still goes somewhat deep is and is cinematic, but it's not as expansive as the ninth wave, but I love the song love and anger. David yeah. Gilmore from Pink Floyd plays, plays a mean guitar on that one. And it sounds fantastic. There's uh this woman's work is on there, which is as you talked about that was featured on the movie. She's having a baby. There's another song that I really liked called deeper understanding that yeah. was on that record. I thought that that was really good. And then once you've kind of got your pop fill, go back to the dreaming. I would just, just give Ooh, the, that's dangerous. That's it's very dangerous. Wow, skating on thin ice there. Wow. Sometimes you've got to be dangerous and go try that album because it's got some really, really interesting experimental songs that um, kind of stick in your head. Yeah. Cause I remember it was such a long wait for the, you know, the four years between Hounds of Love and the Central World in 89, you know, because right. I was, you know, freshman year and then senior year in college when that kind of bridged those two. And then we had to wait another four years, yeah. you know, to get the red shoes. And I'm like, oh my God, what could be worse than that? And all of a sudden, then we have 12 years go by before we get Ariel. Ariel. What's your I, take then on those latter two albums? Because those had huge gaps between them, and now it's already been 10 years since. They did, and I, I know that the song King of the Mountain, that was written around 1993-ish. So I was wondering why the, the Elvis obsession. And I thought, okay, yeah, that was the tail end of people obsessing about Elvis. Um, it was really that made its high point in the 80s, and then I guess it was eh, 93-ish. Maybe she wrote it maybe in the 80s as well and just held it over. It was really hard for me to get into Ariel. I, I have to admit, I was excited to hear new music from her. And Jeff Giles, who was the editor-in-chief of Pop Dose and a friend of both of ours, he he had gotten an advanced copy of it. And he listened to it once. He says, I know you're a fan of this. So here, have it. And I'll never listen to this again. And I was like, okay. <laughs> And I listened to it once or twice and I thought, oh, these songs are just, I don't know. I'm just not, I'm not feeling it. It's okay. And then 50 words for snow. I thought, okay. All right, Kate, guess we'll give you another shot here. And I like some of it. I like the title track. I thought that was pretty playful. Elton John shows up on that record. And it's one that every time I put it on, it's so quiet in a way that I can't engage with it. I almost feel like, okay, what if I just streamed it while I was taking a run or a walk and then just kind of let it wash over me. So that's, that's my next project because I've listened to that album maybe a handful of times and it really doesn't do much for me. And I'm not sure if it's because I'm not listening to it intensely or maybe the songs aren't that good. I don't know. Yeah. Her post red shoes output has just been sort of like, Hmm, Okay, yeah. I, I I'm not feeling it, but uh, and the director's cut to me, yeah. and this is a very unpopular, you know, for the Kate diehards. 
Director's Cut to me is one of the worst albums ever recorded by any artist in any genre. It yep. is painful to listen yeah. to. And you know, for the unaware, the director's yeah. cut was Kate reinterpreting and re-recording some of the songs from The Central World and The Red Shoes. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, you took two perfect albums and then threw all these sound effects in. There's a scene in Uncle Buck where they have all the kitchen, like the pots and pans suspended above the, the kitchen countertop. Right. And right. accidentally they all drop. And that's what it sounds like in one of the songs. And yeah. so, yeah, I kind of had to realize, okay, my Kate Bush is very much kick inside through all the amazing singles that ended the um, Red Shoes era. You know, mm -hmm. like you can't go wrong with any of those tracks. But man, I've just struggled to get into anything from the subsequent eras including it's, the before the dawn you know yeah. multi-disc set i did like before the dawn for its production value too i thought she did a good job bringing those songs to life on the stage you're right it lacks the cinematic or audio punch that's on the recorded versions but for the most part i was pretty amazed because and you you're such a cd collector that you know this that sometimes when audio is mastered for cd and they don't do it right, it can sound super shrill yeah. and to the point where it's like unlistenable if you're like a real audiophile. And what's missing oftentimes is those warm tones in the mid-range. And I felt like whoever did the mixing on this got those warm tones right for CD. And I was, yeah. really, I was really impressed with that. I would love to know though, on the remix or the new version that came out on her Fish People label, they did not put the album cut of The Big Sky on the Hounds of Love record. Which really? to me, that just seems sacrilegious. Like, why would you put the single mix, which is always usually sped yeah. up and a little higher tempo and stuff like that. So it just seems strange that they didn't put the album cut of Big Sky on. But thank God I have seven other versions of the album. So I'm like, <laughs> not letting those go anytime soon. No, 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 no. You don't want to do that. But yeah. definitely Kate Bush is an artist who... Oh, gosh. I had introduced Kate to uh, Michael Magali, who's been on the podcast many times. He was on very early on with um, with John Young and myself. And then he was on also just to talk about The Who. And I had told him years ago, I said something about Kate Bush. I said, uh, and he goes, I've heard the name, but I don't think I've ever listened to her music. I said, you have never listened to the jewel of the English crown of music? I said, are you kidding me? And I gave him Hounds of Love to listen to. And I said, listen to it on the headphone with your headphones. Yeah. So he did. And he used to commute into work. This is back pre-pandemic when we used to go into San Francisco and work together. But he would he would take the bus in from Marin County. So he had a bit of a long ride, a little over an hour. So he spent time listening to music. And he texted me. He says, Oh my God. This is the most amazing record I've heard. Why did I not listen to this or, or why did I ignore this? Yeah. And it was one of those moments where I felt like, ooh, I made a fan. I've done, my, done my missionary work. You know, I've done my I've gotten my convert. <laughs> well, there was a headline saying, I forgot the the the, the publication that ran it, but it says Many Kate Bush fans are jealous of the people just discovering her now because they get to discover her for the first time. Yeah, you know? yeah. And that joy of like, oh my God, like literally there was a before times and an after times. And that's the way it is with Kate Bush and with Prince. And oddly enough, that's one of the, one of the last points I'd love to bring up on this podcast. The two times that Kate Bush and Prince recorded together were huge missed opportunities of greatness. Yeah. One yeah. on her record, The Red Shoes, one on his record, Emancipation. And in both cases, they really kind of play each other down in the mix. You know, mm -hmm. you really can't tell that Prince is on Why Can't I Have You on Red Shoes. And then same thing with My Computer. You know, he could have had any one of his backup singers sing that part and just as fine. You know, it doesn't seem like she's part of it at all. I'm sure that they really admired each other's work. It sounds like when it came time to work with each other, the pieces weren't lining up. I yeah. just I just think that they're two unique visionaries. And when you have those two people with a with a unique vision, they're they're gonna sort of bury the other one in the mix, as it were. And that seems to be the case. Because you look at Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush, and they have many collaborations out, you know, and each one is better than the previous, you know, <clears throat> where they really let each other 
fully shine and elevate each other up from Don't Give Up to Games Without Frontiers to one of my favorites, which is Another Day, which mm-hmm. only appeared on a TV special. So you can only get it on Wobbly, probably recorded from a VHS soundscape. And I would love if they could find the original tape of Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel singing Roy Harper's Another Day. Find it on YouTube, Another Day, Kate Bush. It'll change your life. It's such a haunting vocal. And I think with that, that's where we're going to leave it because I want to go check it out on YouTube. Why wait? Let's let's wrap this up. Okay. YouTube, that one, (laughs) and YouTube, Less Dogs, her acting debut as the Randy Bride. And yeah, you're like, oh, Kate Bush X. How about that? Excellent. Keith, thanks again for being on the pod. We always enjoy having you on to talk about new music. And this time, really doing a deep dive into Kate Bush's The Hounds of Love. And we'll see you in July, right? Sounds good. All right. And thank you for listening back soon with uh, another podcast where we drop the needle on a world of albums. So long for now. Bye.